0: Good evening, Uni Church. Welcome. Good to be with you tonight. My name is Lachlan. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you tonight to come up and say hi after the service. We've just heard the voice of the living God. Isn't that fantastic? The God who created us, the God who sustains us, has spoken to us. Uh, what a privilege to come to church and sit together and learn from Him. I'm going to pray that we would hear God well tonight, that we'd understand what He's saying to us, that His Word would have its impact in us. So would you pray with me to that it happen? Heavenly Father, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written. It's your word, hot off your breath, breathed out through human authors, human prophets. it's your very word. And you've given it to us to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have in store for us. Thank you for that great gift. Thank you that you want to grow us and shape us and change us. Please do that work tonight. Come with your living and active word and cut us deep. Do your surgery in us. Then not walk out of this place changed. More like your son, Jesus, more like you. Give us humble hearts to hear your word and to heed it. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you respond when people oppose you? How does it make you feel when people block your goals, when they stand in your way, when they say that you're wrong, that you're a fool? Sometimes there can just be neutral opposition, but what about when it gets personal and people are hostile towards you? How do you respond when people hate you? All of us will have different default responses to hostility whether it's to arc up in defence and be like, how dare you say that to me? Or some of us will just creep back into the sidelines, try to evade and run away from the conflict. Others will take their lead from the politicians. And when there's opposition, they'll be like, all right, let me dig up all the dirt on my opposition. I'll bring them down and then I can look good to other people. Back when I was at university, my response to opposition, I loved it. I loved a good bit of conflict Uh, I think over time I've become less arrogant and don't love it as much now. But what about you? you the kind of person that loves conflict and runs towards it, or who hates conflict and avoids it as much as you can. Today in John 7, we see that to be a Christian is to be in conflict. To proclaim Jesus is to invite opposition and hostility. Further than that, to live for Jesus, to side with Jesus, is actually to be hated by the world. You see, John 7 is a chapter full of people responding to Jesus in different ways. I counted something around 10 different responses to Jesus in this chapter. And I think the point John wants us to see tonight is that Jesus generates confusion and opposition. Hopefully you heard that as the passage was read for us. But in case you missed it, we're gonna have a quick skim through this whole chapter. See the different responses to Jesus. So if you've got your Bible there, keep it open to John 7. You're not here to hear me speak, but to hear God speak in his word. Keep your Bible open there. If you've got an outline, there's some space for notes in there. We're gonna have question time at the end. If you've been coming to UniChat's the last few weeks, you'll be used to that by now. But if you're new, we take questions every week. We want to make sure that you're grappling with God's word. If there's something that you've got a question about in John 7, send that through to the text number and we'll get to questions at the end. Let's go on this skim through chapter 7 and have a look at the different responses to Jesus. It starts in verse 1. The very first sentence, we're told that people are trying to kill Jesus. That's some pretty hectic hostility straight up. The Jews, specifically the Jewish religious leaders, they want Jesus dead. Next, we hear that Jesus' brothers are mocking him, verse 2 to verse 5. Jesus is staying away from Jerusalem, avoiding the people that want to kill him. But his brothers are egging him on to go there. Not because they believe in him. They think he's just out to get some attention, that he just wants to be famous. They say to him, go on, Jesus. We know your heart. We know that you want to be famous. All these people are flocking to Jerusalem for a festival. You should go down there. Do your attention-seeking fancy-schmancy tricks down in Jerusalem. Then lots of people will love you. They're mocking him. I wonder if you've ever experienced mockery from your family for being a Christian. It's not pleasant, is it? Jesus experienced it as well. Jesus ends up going to Jerusalem during the festival. When he gets there, the crowds are confused about him. So here, verse 12, and they're murmuring about him. Some think that he's a good man. Others think that he's a deceiver. In verse 14, Jesus stands up to teach in the temple, and the crowd, or at least some of the crowd, are amazed. They're like, this guy hasn't been to a seminary, he hasn't spent years at Bible college, but he knows God's Word so well. What's going on? Then Jesus raises the idea that people want to kill him and that turns the crowd's verdict on him. They think he's delusional, saying this guy's got a demon. Who wants to kill him? They haven't heard yet about the plot to kill Jesus. They're not from Jerusalem, probably. We hear about the local Jerusalem people in the next chunk. They do know the plot to kill Jesus. And so in verse 26 they're wondering if the Jewish religious leaders have decided that Jesus really is the Messiah. But they're pretty sure he doesn't fit the criteria, so they're confused as well. It doesn't take long for that confusion to turn to hostility. By verse 30, people are trying to arrest Jesus. Some have started believing that he's the Messiah. Then in verse 32, the Pharisees team up with the chief priest. Those guys didn't normally like each other. They were like different political parties, but now they had a common enemy. And so they teamed up and sent servants to arrest Jesus. We get to verse 40 and the crowd at this point is firmly divided. You've got some saying that Jesus is the prophet. The fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, Moses saying that a greater prophet would come who would speak God's word to them. Others are saying, no, no, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king who would come. But still others maintain that Jesus doesn't fit that criteria for the Messiah. So again, in verse 44, people are trying to arrest Jesus. But the temple servants who were sent to arrest him, they turn up back to the Pharisees and the chief priests empty-handed. They've seen crooks and criminals before, and they're pretty sure that Jesus isn't one. He's neither deceptive nor delusional. In verse 46, their report back to their leaders is, no man ever spoke like this. And so it ends with the religious leaders pretty sure that they're right, arrogantly sure that they're right, demeaning their servants, demeaning the crowd, saying, you guys are just so naive and foolish. The chapter on the whole reminds me of an episode of Survivor, enjoying the new season of Survivor, and you've kind of got everyone having their say. They're not sure what's going on or what's going to happen. Some people want Jesus off the island. Other people love him. But everyone's worried about speaking their opinion too much out in the open. They're worried about being caught out and being on the wrong side of the vote. It's quite the catalogue of responses to Jesus. People can't figure him out. And the Jewish authorities all the way through, they want him dead. You see, Jesus generates confusion and hostility. What is it about Jesus that's triggering these people? What's Jesus done to provoke these responses? Well, in the first place, it's the stuff that we've already seen as we've been going through John's Gospel the last couple of months. Back in chapter 5, a couple of weeks ago, kind of the turning point in the conflict, Jesus healed a paralyzed man and told him to pick up his mat and carry it, even though it was a Sabbath day, the Jewish day of rest. That kind of sparked the hostility, but then it got worse because Jesus explained why he had healed a man on the Sabbath. Do you remember Jesus' reason from a couple of weeks ago? He said to the Jews that he could do it because he was equal with God as a son to the Father. As his father was working, so he was working. And the Jewish religious leaders, well, to them, that was blasphemy. That was a degrading of God. There was a man standing before them, and this man was saying that he was God? And God's not like that. That's why they wanted to kill him. They heard him claiming equality with God, and that was too much. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on it today, because we covered those things two weeks ago. Do go back and listen to that sermon on John 5 if you missed it. But notice here in chapter 7, Jesus picks up the Sabbath and his divinity again. These things are still kind of fermenting for the Jewish religious leaders. So in verse 16 to 23, that little dialogue from Jesus there, Jesus is arguing that what he did on the Sabbath wasn't anything different uh, to what the Jews do on the Sabbath. He gives them the example that they should recognize from circumcision that there are some things within the law that take priority over the Sabbath. They're willing to circumcise a man on the Sabbath, Jesus is just healing a man on the Sabbath. They should recognize this. Verse 28 to 29, he reiterates his divinity. As people are discussing where Jesus comes from, he tells them, look, I've actually come down from heaven. I'm from above, sent by God. So these issues of his Sabbath and divinity are still going on. Jesus doesn't budge on those. He doesn't shy away from truth in the midst of opposition. Instead, he turns it back on the crowd. He says, the issue is not with me. The issue is that you don't want to do God's will. You have God's law, but you're not keeping it. If they were keeping God's law, they wouldn't be trying to kill him. And Jesus says, verse 24, Stop judging according to outward appearances. Stop expecting me to fit your mold, to look and sound like these other religious leaders. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Jesus says, you know who I am, make the right call. Then in addition to these issues from chapter 5, we get some new details about Jesus in chapter 7 and about why people are opposing him. So have a look there at verse 7, where Jesus is responding to his brother's mockery. John chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but it does hate me. Because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Boom. Jesus testifies that the world's works are evil. That would trigger some hostility. Telling someone that they're evil, that their deeds are wicked. I don't like hearing that. No one likes hearing that. But this is a central part of Jesus' message. Jesus comes declaring that the world is darkness, evil, and under the just judgment of God. He says plainly that whoever doesn't believe in Him is already condemned. Remember John 3 verse 36? If you haven't already underlined and highlighted this one in your Bible, turn there and do it now. It's worth memorizing. Such a good, simple summary of part of Jesus' message. John summarizes in 3 verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus' testimony is that the world is wicked and currently sits under the wrath of God. He says that with his words and he shows it to be true in his actions. Jesus' life, his obedience to God, showing his love for others, his faithfulness to the truth, it all reflects like a mirror back on others who are not like him. As we read the gospel and see how good Jesus is, we realize how not good we are. Jesus is the light that shows us our darkness. I wonder how you feel about Jesus now. Jesus thinks that you deserve hell, eternal perishing under God's anger. Now, lest you think I'm standing here being all holier than thou, I'm not saying this is you specifically, this is what Jesus thinks of me as well. Jesus says that I am wicked to the core, that I deserve hell. This is Jesus' statement about the whole world. Our works are not good. They're not even neutral they're evil. It makes sense that the world hates Jesus, yeah? Jesus' message doesn't stop at this point. Jesus doesn't just turn up into the world and go, hey guys, you're all going to hell, see you later, good luck with that. No, no, no. Jesus steps into the world to save us. Have a look at verse 37 of John chapter 7. I think this is the climax of this chapter. John, you notice, draws our attention to this verse. He tells us it's the last and greatest day of the festival. He says that Jesus in the temple stands up and cries out, what's Jesus going to offer on this last great day of the festival? Jesus says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. It sounds a bit cryptic at first, like, what are you saying there, Jesus? Can't you speak a bit more plainly? But it actually fits in really nicely with this festival that's going on. It was the Festival of Shelters, one of three big festivals for the Jewish people. And it was about water. It was the change of seasons. There hadn't been much rain in Israel for a while. And so Israel gathered to pray for rain, to ask God to bless the land with rain so that crops would grow. But they did this festival. They prayed to God while living in tents for a week. They'd move out of their houses, build some tents, and they did that to remember how God had provided for Israel during 40 years when Israel lived in the desert. Remember Israel, and we heard about this last week in John 6, they'd been saved by God out of slavery in Egypt. God was taking them to the promised land, but they got to the edge of the promised land and said, oh God, the people in there look a bit big for us. I don't think we can take them on. We might just not go in at this point. They didn't trust God, and so God said well, you need to trust me, and because you didn't trust me, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until a whole generation dies out. And so for 40 years, Israel just kind of walked around in a circle in the desert, and they lived in tents. And they lived in shelters. They didn't build houses there. And while they were wandering in the desert, desert doesn't have much water, God provided water miraculously out of a rock. God refreshed them even when they rebelled against him. And so the festival of shelters every year reminded Israel of their rebellion against God and his miraculous refreshment of them. This festival looked backwards, but it also looked forwards. In one of the latter prophets of the Old Testament, Zechariah. Who's read Zechariah, by the way? This would be a good little... eh? Yeah, cool, good. It's good to read all of those bits of the Bible, not just the ones that you like, but the whole thing. Uh, Zechariah, one of the latter prophets. It's hard to understand very tricky book. Write down chapter 13 and 14, have a look at them later. The setting in Zechariah 13 and 14 is looking forward to a festival of shelters that would come. Uh, God's promising a future day when His plans will be completed. I'll show you just two key verses from within there. Zechariah 13 verse 1, God says, "'On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem.' to wash away sin and impurity. What a promise. Water to wash away sin. Zechariah 14 verse 8, On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea, in summer and winter alike. On that day the Lord will become king over the whole earth. These are promises connected with the festival of shelters. Shelters. Promises of forgiveness, the washing away of sin by living water, available to all people, to the east and to the west, for all time, summer and winter. This was all connected in Israelites' mind as they came to celebrate the festival. And in John chapter 7, we find them celebrating. It's the last day of the feast, the greatest day of the feast. Imagine the impact as Jesus stands up and cries out amidst the crowds that have come from everywhere, if you're thirsty... If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. He's not talking about physical thirst, though it's a fitting illustration. You know that moment when you've been working a long, hard day? No, your university. Should, no, you, you do work long, hard days, don't mind <laughs> I'm sure you do, I'm sure you do. You come home from a long, hard day in the sun, you drink that first glass of water, the refreshment that is so, it just tastes so good. It's a fitting illustration for what Jesus is offering here, but it's an image of a spiritual thirst, of a desire for forgiveness, for the end of that desert period of judgment. It's a thirst for true refreshment, for true satisfaction, for true life. When Jesus addresses those who are thirsty, talking to those who in humility have recognised that their works are evil and they're thirsting after God. John clarifies that for us in verse 38. He says that the living water is the Spirit, God's Spirit who believers will receive after Jesus has died and been raised back to life. Jesus is offering us that God will come and live within us, that God will come and make us His dwelling. If you come to Jesus, you'll receive deep refreshment, deep satisfaction. Your satisfaction will no longer come from things outside of you, things that only last temporarily and need to keep being replaced. God will be dwelling within you. Your satisfaction will be within you and it will endure for eternity. Is this something that you want? As you come here this evening, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty to be refreshed and satisfied? Are you thirsty for forgiveness? Are you thirsty for God? Then friend, come to Jesus and drink. Come and drink and receive God's Spirit. Yes, Jesus testifies that your works are evil. But you know he's right. You do and say and think things that you wish you didn't. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and He offers you forgiveness tonight. Come and drink. We've seen in John 7 the confusion and opposition that Jesus generated in His earthly life. And as John tells us about this, He's preparing us who are Christians to face that same kind of opposition and hostility. As we are sent out by Jesus into the world as His witnesses to proclaim Him, to proclaim His message... Don't expect everyone straight away to instantly want to follow Jesus. You probably don't expect that already from your experience of talking to people about Jesus. People don't go, oh, right, yeah, Jesus, of course, I'll turn my life around and follow him. Expect there to be confusion. But more than that, what we should expect is hostility. Because as we live like Jesus and proclaim Jesus' message, we too proclaim that the world's works are evil. And people don't like that. Come over to John 15 and see where Jesus prepares his disciples for this. John 15 verse 18. This is, I think, where the theme develops in John. And by the time we hit John 15, Jesus is talking to his closest disciples. He says to them in verse 18, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Church, the world hates you. Don't expect anything different. The only way that the world will like you is if you stop being like Jesus. And People hated Jesus a lot. They ended up killing him. Should we expect that? Jesus goes on in verse 20 of John 15. He says, Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Further down in John 16, verse 1 to 2, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. Christians should not expect any less hatred from the world than Jesus received himself. We should expect persecution, imprisonment, death. We should expect hostility and opposition if we are proclaiming Jesus' message about the world's works. Because it's easy, isn't it, to go silent about that? It's easy not to say the hard things that Jesus says. It's easy to not speak about sin and judgment and hell. I'll admit that for some people it's all too easy to speak about those things and they speak about them in an ungodly way. They tell people that they're bound for hell with a look of joy or glee in their eyes. Some people speak not out of love but just out of a desire to be right or vindicated. That's not good. That's probably driven by pride and arrogance and that needs to be repented of. We don't tell people that they're going to hell because we derive some joy out of that. We tell them because it hurts us. See, I don't think for us our error is going to be talking about hell too much, but the other side of things, we're going to be so worried about being offensive that we drift to the other extreme and stay silent about these hard truths. Don't stay silent, friends. But with tears, with a heavy heart, bring Jesus' bleak message about the world's works, the evil works, and their just judgment. I remember a few years back, I was working in retail. I love working in retail. If you're looking for a job, go retail. It'll help you. Oh, it's so good for conversation. You meet great people. I was talking to my manager. Uh, she was wonderful. She was lovely. She had a Catholic background, had grown up in a Catholic school, Catholic family, but she didn't believe a thing about God at all. Uh, She was working in retail, a promo girl for a nightclub as well. She loved the party life. And we'd had a few conversations back and forth about Jesus. But I remember one day the penny dropped for her, and she looked at me and she said, Lachlan, are you saying that you think I'm going to hell? Have you ever been asked that? Have you ever had that conversation with friends, family members? I said to her the kind of thing that I've said to a number of people who have asked me that over the years. I said, yeah, actually, Sarah, I do. I do think you're currently headed for hell and I'm not happy about it. I don't want that to be your end. That's why I'm trying to tell you about Jesus. That's why I'm having these awkward conversations that you probably wish we weren't having. But it's because I love you. I care about you. I don't want to see you headed for hell and you don't have to. Come to Jesus. Be saved. Don't shrink back from that proclamation. Of course people will hate you for saying that they're evil. Just like they hated our master, Jesus. But some will love you for warning them and pointing them to Jesus. Some will love you and will come and receive living water from Jesus and be saved. Now, I know that some of you are already facing mockery and hostility from colleagues, from friends, perhaps hardest of all, from family. I hope you're already feeling some comfort tonight to know that what you're experiencing is not unusual. It's not that you've done something wrong. It's not like the words that you've said have have stumbled. No, hostility is what you should expect. It's what we're to expect as Christians. But John 7 provides even more comfort, more confidence for us as we head out into a hostile world. There's this theme that's been running through John's gospel, surfacing at different points, and it comes up here in John 7, and it helps us prepare for opposition. It's the theme of Jesus hour. I wonder if you noticed that as we read through chapter 7. See, although Jesus is generating this confusion and opposition, the point that's made clear is that no opposition can alter God's plan or timeline. No authority, no hostility, no opposition can change what God is doing and when God is doing it. Have a closer look at John 7 verse 6 as Jesus answers his brother's mockery. John 7 verse 6, Jesus told them, My time hasn't yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. And go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival, because my time hasn't yet come. Twice there, Jesus speaks about his time, and he says it's not here yet. What is that? A bit later on in verse 30, notice what happens. Then they tried to seize Jesus, yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I don't know what that would have looked like. I've had fun kind of imagining people running through the temple trying to play a game of tag with Jesus. I don't think it would have looked like that. We don't get told the details, but what we do get told is that Jesus couldn't be arrested because it wasn't the right time. The same thing happens later on in chapter 8, verse 20. Pretty much the same verse. No one arrests Jesus because his hour hasn't yet come. What is this hour? Well, eventually, as we keep going through John's story, we get to chapter 12. In verse 23, Jesus says, "'The hour has come. "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. "'Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies,' It remains by itself, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus' hour is the hour of his glorification, which is the hour of his death. It's an hour that's been appointed by the Father. In John 13 verse 1, Jesus, uh, John speaks of it as the hour for Jesus to depart from this world and go to the Father. The hour is the hour of Jesus' death. And the point here is that God has a plan, God has a timeline. God's appointed an hour when Jesus would die. And until that hour came, Jesus would not die. People are trying to arrest Jesus in chapters 7 and 8, but they can't because it doesn't fit God's plan or God's timeline. No matter how strong the hostility against Jesus gets, Jesus' opponents don't actually have any power over him. The Jewish leaders aren't setting the agenda. The crowd's not setting the agenda. The Roman rulers aren't setting the agenda. Jesus is setting the agenda. Jesus is setting the timeline. This continues through in John 18. I think this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Have a look at it later. We're not going to get to that in this series. We're holding off on the second half of John till next year. So stick around. Come back next year for John 18. Uh, but this is a great story. Jesus' hour has finally come, it's the night for him to be arrested, and the soldiers turn up to arrest him. Uh, even at this point, they don't have any real authority or power. They turn up and they ask, or Jesus asks them, oh, who are you looking for? And, like, we're looking for Jesus. He says, oh yeah, that's me. The soldiers step back and fall to the ground as if they're terrified. They get back up to their feet and Jesus goes, uh, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus yeah, that's me. Come on, let's kind of, I've already told you it's me. Can we do this? Like, come on. It's this weird story that shows that even there, when Jesus is finally arrested, he's the one that's in control. He's not kind of plucked against his will and dragged off. When we get to John 19 and Jesus stands before Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate's like, all right, Jesus, you've got to talk to me. I've got the power to set you free or to kill you. And Jesus' response is so good. He says, Pilate, you've got no authority over me except the authority that God my Father has given you. Isn't this theme in John so helpful? We see that Jesus lays down his life willingly. His death isn't some accident. It's not like he came to teach some good morals and accidentally got on the wrong side of the wrong people and they put him to death. Jesus' death wasn't ultimately the result of the hatred that his enemies had for him, as if they had some power over him. No, God had set this agenda from the very first. Jesus came into the world to die. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. He loves you. He wants you to have life. So he set his face to go to Jerusalem where he would be mocked and beaten and crucified. Have a listen to Jesus in John 10, verse 17 to 18. Wonderful words here. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. Isn't Jesus amazing? Trust him. Throw in your lot with him, side with him, follow Jesus. Jesus' death was God's plan and God had set the hour for it. No opposition could change God's plan or timeline. In the same way that's true for Jesus, it's also true for us. Whatever hostility we face as Christians today, our opposition can't impact God's plan for us. They can't change God's timeline for us. Now, there's some difference between us and Jesus. If you haven't realized it already, Jesus is God, you're not. There's some difference there. That meant that Jesus knew the hour that had been appointed for his death. We don't know the exact plan and timeline that God has for each of us individually. Perhaps that would be good to know, perhaps not. But God has told us everything that we need to know. He's commissioned us to be Jesus' witnesses, to proclaim his message. He's sent us out currently in this city of Auckland to tell people about Jesus. And he's warned us that as we do that, we will be hated. But friends, face that opposition without fear, because God is with you and he is still in control. So you may well be arrested at some point in the future, simply because you're a Christian. I'm not saying that to kind of fear-monger and go, oh no, the world's getting worse and worse. No, I would be saying the same thing 10 years ago. I don't know what's happening in society. around. I don't know the hostility is getting more or less against Christians. I'm just saying that the reality is the expectation should be for us as Christians that we could get arrested simply for being Christian. It's happening for our brothers and sisters right now in various parts of the world. We prayed for China earlier. It's good to be praying for our brothers and sisters in this setting. But as you expect that know that it's not going to happen before God decides that it will. The government that locks you up, they're not setting the agenda. They're not setting the timeline. You may end up getting killed for being a Christian, for proclaiming Jesus' message. That's okay. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And God won't let you get killed before His timing. He's already got all your days written in His book. He knows each and every one of them. Often when we fear death in that sense, as Christians, we, we know that it'll be good for us, but we're a bit worried about the people left behind, family that we might leave behind. God will look after them. It's not like you being killed has surprised God and gone outside of His plan. Face opposition with confidence. God is in control. So don't let the fear of imprisonment, the fear of death let alone the fear of mockery, the fear of losing your job, the fear of getting cut off from your family, don't let any of those fears keep you silent about Jesus. Because your friends, your family, your employer, they're not setting the agenda. God is in His perfect timing. So let's keep trusting God. Let's keep proclaiming Jesus in our hostile world. Jesus stood up amidst this hostility and He cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Doesn't that inspire you to keep inviting people to meet Jesus, even amidst the hostility of Auckland this week? Jesus is amazing. He's so resolute, so truthful in the face of hostility, so loving. Let him inspire you tonight to be like him, to be hated by the world and yet still speak. There's one last little nugget that I want to draw out from you from the last few verses of John 7. But we're going to pause at this point, take some questions, and then I'll come back and show us those last few verses. So hopefully you've been messaging through some questions and they're going to come up on the screen down here and we'll see where we can get to in God's Word. That's a lot of text there. Maybe I can see it better up here. Question. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ come from Galilee? Yep, John seven forty-one to 42. Jesus saw that some people couldn't believe in Him because He was from Galilee, while Scripture said Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. Why wouldn't He say that to them? Their doubts seem reasonable to me. How would they know that He was born in Bethlehem? Fascinating question. Uh, So it's a good pick-up from the text, like we know as the readers of this Gospel, although not necessarily from this Gospel. John's left that to us as his readers, and he's left it to his original readers to pick up from the other accounts of Jesus floating around. You remember from John 1, John doesn't actually tell us where Jesus was born. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all testify to the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You might remember the story from Christmas time. Born in Bethlehem, quickly moved to Nazareth. Uh, so the common thought of Jesus at the time was that he was a Nazarene. That's how he was known, Jesus the Nazarene. Why didn't Jesus just tell them that? Uh, I don't know. I'm not Jesus. Uh, I can't get into his mindset. The text doesn't tell us. But notice what he does affirm in this. The priority for John and for Jesus within John is to show us that Jesus' origins are actually divine. Uh, That's that's his answer within this chapter. He's going, look, whatever city I'm from, actually I've come from God, and you should recognize that. Uh, You think you know the law, he says, but you actually don't know the law at all. One of the great things in the last few verses that I wasn't going to show you, but I'll tell you now, it ends with the religious leaders going, you'll see that no prophet arises from Galilee. But as you look it up, Jonah and Nahum, two prophets of the Old Testament, came from Galilee. So I think Jesus at this point is going, come on guys, you're trying to come up with all these excuses for why I'm not who I say I am, but you're actually just missing the point. I don't need to give you this detailed defense about your specific questions. Uh, Just come to me and hear me. And if you're looking for God's will, then you'll recognize me. So I think there's something of that going on. The other thing that could be going on, um, though I'm tentative to say it's exactly what's happening here in John 7, if you read Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks in Mark 4 about why he speaks in parables. Uh, A lot of people today think that Jesus speaks in parables because they're like illustrations that help people understand. Uh, But Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says that he speaks in parables so that people won't understand. That's confusing, right? But Jesus, in doing that, is fulfilling a prophecy of Isaiah saying that on Israel, their time for turning back to God has run out. That as he comes, so many people are already hard-hearted against God and his come to make them blind. We're going to see that in John chapter 9, right at the end. Jesus says, you who think that you see, because you think that you see, You are already blind and you're going to stay that way. So, Jesus' words have this double effect. To those who are open to God, they'll press in, they'll ask, they'll explore. For those who have already closed off their hearts to God, they'll stay away. They'll go, This Jesus guy is too confusing. We're not interested. There could be something of that going on, but I'm not sure. But that is something that Jesus does elsewhere. Hopefully, that's answered the question for you. Happy to chat some more about that. Next one What's the difference between the prophet and the Messiah? Is Jesus both? If so, is there anything in the Old Testament suggesting these are the same person? Brilliant question. Deuteronomy 18, flick over there. We'll see if we can find it. Uh, I was reading this the other day. Where is it? Uh, Verse 15. So this is the background for the prophet idea. You'll notice it's not just a prophet, but it's the prophet. So they are looking forward to a particular one. Uh, Moses, speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, says, "'The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me "'from among your own brothers. "'You must listen to him. "'This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb "'on the day of the assembly when you said, "'Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God "'or see this great fire any longer, "'so that we will not die. "'Then the Lord said to me, "'They've spoken well. "'I'll raise up for them a prophet like you "'from among their brothers. "'I'll put my words in his mouth.' And he will tell them everything I command him. I'll hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. And he goes on to warn about false prophets that will come. But there's this great promise for Israel of a prophet. Moses was kind of the big prophet of the Old Testament. There's a promise that although there'll be other prophets along the way, there's going to be another great prophet, the final prophet to come. Jesus is uh, that prophet. Jesus is the one who comes as God in the flesh, as the one who is the word of God. So as we hear Jesus speak, we hear God speak. So yes, he is the fulfillment of that passage. Uh, the Messiah is the son of David, and that's 2 Samuel 7. We won't flick there. We've studied 2 Samuel as a church. Uh, so go back, was that last year, two years ago? Last year, right? Two years ago, great. Uh, you can go back and find that 2 Samuel 7, that David is Israel's first king. And God promises to David that he'll always have a son to sit on his throne. And Israel's looking forward as they see son after son of David that are just terrible kings. The kingdom of Israel gets worse and worse. They're looking forward to a king who will rule with justice, who will rule well, who will love people. Uh, That king, uh, the Messiah just means the anointed one. Kings were anointed, so they're looking forward to that Messiah to come. Jesus is the Messiah as well. So the answer is yes, he is both is there anything in the Old Testament suggesting they're the same person? Not that I know of. So that would have been a surprise for people, in the same way as Jesus being the suffering servant of Isaiah, as well as the Messiah, would have been a surprise. It's why in Mark chapter 8, when the disciples finally figure out that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus then tells them, now I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Peter's like, hang on Jesus, I think you've got this Messiah thing a bit wrong. You're not meant to die, you're meant to reign. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, and you're not seeing things properly. You're looking from a human perspective. So these uh, prophecies of the Old Testament do come together and culminate in Jesus in a surprising way that no one was really expecting. Uh, it's one of the great things about Jesus that actually all of Old Testament prophecy finds its fulfillment in him. Next. If I'm liked by people who aren't Christian, does that mean that I'm not living the way Christ does? Thank you for asking this. Um, It's a good question to reflect on personally. I can't answer this for you. Uh, I can't from up front here because I don't know who you are, don't know what your life is like. But it is a good question to keep asking yourself. Uh, It might well be that they haven't heard you say Jesus' message. They haven't heard that you think they're going to hell. That's going to cause some rift in your relationship probably. Hopefully you still love them. Hopefully that doesn't change the way that you're living towards them. We are called to love our neighbour as ourselves. That includes all people. So we keep reaching out in love. But if people know that you think they're headed for hell, that might cause some issues. Uh, It might not. We can still live in harmony together and it's great. I have good non-Christian friends who do like me. Uh, But it's worth continuing to ask yourself. I think one of the ones I keep asking myself is... um, is my use of money so much like the world that people aren't feeling convicted about their use of money as they get to know me? Am I different enough in that way? Am I obeying Jesus' call with my use of money that actually looks different from the world? That's a good question to keep asking. I know for me, one small example of this when I was at university where I did get cut off by friends was because we treated alcohol differently. And so I used to get, in first year, I was invited to parties, people were getting smashed... Uh, I remember one where they did the Centurion. I don't know if that's still a thing, but like a hundred glasses of beer in a hundred minutes. Craziness. Um, That's uni days, right? And I wasn't getting involved in that. I was there sober amidst all these friends who were just drinking their heads to silliness. And so it was only after like two or three parties that I stopped getting invited because there was something different about me And, and they didn't want to hang out with me in a setting where I was going to be so noticeably different. Uh, I think the same thing happens with language. If you've got a group of friends who love to gossip and you stop gossiping and you start calling them out on it, they're probably not going to keep wanting to hang out for too long. So it is worth asking that question, doing some soul-searching, going, is there behaviour that my friends are getting involved in uh, that I shouldn't be getting involved in and that perhaps I am a bit too much like them and I'm not testifying that their way of living is not the right way to live? That's worth asking, it's worth checking, uh, part of the joy of life in New Zealand at the moment is that our culture is largely built on Christian values still. that's changing, I think, as time goes on, but we've got a rich Christian heritage in the last couple of hundred years, and that means that largely the behaviours of Christians, the behaviours that Jesus would commend, are still reflected and commended outside by the regular community, such that some of that friendship can happen because there is a common base. You go to other countries where it isn't built on those Christian foundations and values, it's going to be much harder because the difference will be more obvious. But I think as time goes on, those differences will keep showing up and it will become harder and harder as a Christian to maintain those friendships and be liked uh, as you live out a different way of being. The other thing that as I'm talking, I'm thinking of here is that some people, as they see the Christian life lived out, will be attracted to it. We actually do have a better way of living. God's commands are for our good. And so as people come into Christian community, they will see stuff that they like and love. Uh, That is right and proper, because God's commands for humanity are the best commands for us. Uh, They are the way to have a good life. And so some people will like what they see in you, because you're not going to gossip about them. They can trust you. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to swear at them and get angry at them. You're going to forgive them. Christians actually hopefully, make good friends. Uh, And so people might like you because of that as well. There's a whole bunch of things there. Uh, Come and talk to me later if you are really wrestling with that. Uh, But do be asking yourself that question. Am I obeying Jesus or do I actually look a lot like the world? Remember James said friendship with the world is hostility towards God. it's possible as Christians to become friends with the world and to shift and mould into different values and ways of living. I think we've got one more question. Oh, another long one. No, I'm going up here. I'd love to see my close friends to know God and have attempted to share a few times, but made it clear that they don't want anything to do with Christianity and even displayed hostility. It seems like they want to be a friend to have a good time instead of one who has their... they want me to be a friend to have a good time instead of one who has their best interest in mind. Hmm... How shall I treat slash engage with friends them? Shall I keep trying or be prepared to lose these friendships? Yeah. Who was I talking about this with the other day? We were talking about casting pearls before swine, wiping the dust off your feet. There's some interesting themes that come up in the Gospels where the disciples are instructed by Jesus uh, to know that when they're rejected in a town, they should show that the people have rejected Jesus and that they've missed their opportunity, wipe the dust off your feet and go elsewhere. Uh, It's very hard. I don't know where that line sits. My former pastor, uh, I love him to bits, he once told his mother-in-law, he quoted the verse, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine. Not a good idea to call your mother-in-law a pig. Um, (laughs) But he was reflecting that he'd sought to share the gospel with her and she'd rejected it. She'd understood the gospel, she'd rejected it. He was saying, well, I'm not going to bother anymore. I've given you an opportunity. There's more people out there that haven't had an opportunity to hear about Jesus yet. If you want to come back and ask me questions later, I'll be here. But until then, I'm going to stop trying. There is a place for that. I think my tendency is not to ever get to that point, but there is a place for that. There's a place to go, look, I've given you an opportunity. You've understood Jesus' message and you've chosen to reject it. So I'm still going to be your friend. I'm still going to love you and care for you because our friendship isn't just based on whether someone becomes a Christian or not. We love people because they're people. If they're in your life, you've got opportunity to care for them, keep reaching out in love for them, Uh, keep praying for them, for sure. God can work in any heart. Uh, So don't stop praying for them, but you may stop trying to talk to them about Jesus. Uh, I wouldn't do that without telling them that's what you're going to do. Give them that final conversation and go, look, I feel like you've understood what Jesus is on about, I feel like you're making a willing choice to reject it. That's your choice. I can't force you. I can't compel you. Uh, Do know that I think this means when you meet Jesus one day, you will meet Jesus one day, and you're going to be on the wrong side. And that hurts me. I'm sad about that, but it is your choice. Leave them with that so they know they can come to you for any questions that they've got later on. If God moves in their heart, leave them with that. But you can keep being their friend. Uh, friend to have a good time is an interesting phrase there. I wonder what a good time means there. Like, I just talked about the alcohol and the partying, and if it's that kind of friend, then you're probably not getting involved with them in that same flood of debauchery, is the phrase that Peter would use. Uh, but if it's just being a friend and playing Nintendo 6 no, not 64. Look at my age there. My goodness. <laughs> that was when Mario Kart was the best, though, yeah? Um, and six, do play... Anyway... Uh, if, if that's the kind of good time, if it's just getting together to have a coffee and chat, hey, keep being their friend. Keep supporting them through the good times and the bad. That's okay. But there may come a point where you go, look, there's other people that I can share the gospel with. I'm going to stop butting my head against the tree here. You've made your choice. I'm going to go talk to someone else. Do come and chat to me more about that. I'd love to love helping us as a church think through evangelism. Love to hear more of the story there and, and offer more counsel. Uh, But thanks for asking those questions. Good to see you grappling with God's Word. Let me show you this last little nugget at the end of John 7. It's a last little bit of encouragement that even amongst the religious leaders who hate Jesus the most, one of them responds to Jesus' offer of salvation. See verse 50? John 7 verse 50. Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus earlier, was back in chapter 3, and who was one of them, one of the religious leaders, he said to them, Our Lord doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? That's a gutsy move from Nicodemus, and he gets shut down for it in verse 53. But it's unclear at this point whether Nicodemus is fully in with Jesus. But by the time we get to the end of John's gospel, we find Nicodemus, one of two men who collect Jesus' body off the cross, cover him with spices and prepare him for burial that is a public declaration from nicodemus that he sides with jesus remember this guy was one of if not the leading pharisee of his day and so that first good friday when nicodemus went with his mate joseph to take jesus body down off the cross that was the end of his life as a respected pharisee but it was the start of his life walking with jesus and that is better by so far it's almost indescribable Any of us who are Christians, one day we will meet Nicodemus in the resurrection. It's going to be fantastic. But imagine if, imagine if Jesus, at the first sign of hostility, just kind of arced up and went angry at everyone and smashed them. Or imagine if Jesus felt the stirrings of opposition and just retreated back into silence, tried to avoid the conflict. Imagine if Jesus wasn't willing to suffer, wasn't willing to be arrested, Imagine if Jesus wasn't willing to die. Then, hey, Nicodemus might have had a great 60 to 70 years of life as a respected Pharisee, but then an eternity in hell. Jesus spoke up. He faced the hostility and he kept offering salvation. So let him be an inspiration for us tonight. Let him inspire us to head out into our hostile city and find the thirsty people who will come to Jesus and drink deep from his well of forgiveness. Then we're going to look forward to meeting many more, like Nicodemus, on that final day, joining us in eternity together. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. You have equipped us tonight. For some of us, you've rebuked us, corrected us, You've rebuked us for the times that we've stayed silent or rebuked us for the times when we've spoken but not out of love. And you've equipped us. You've prepared us to face hostility. Thank you for telling the truth to us so that we don't get surprised and caused to stumble when people hate us, when they want to arrest us, when they mock us. You've warned us ahead of time and we're so thankful for that. And so please now fill us with your Spirit. Embolden us. That we might not be silent, but we might speak of Jesus, proclaim his message, testify to him, even as that testimony declares that the world's works are evil. Father, please give us opportunities this week. Give us an opportunity tomorrow to talk to someone about Jesus and help us take that opportunity to call them to repentance and salvation, to invite them to come and drink from Christ, to find their satisfaction in him. And please save people. Even those here tonight that are, are sitting here thinking about Jesus, this might have been the first time that they've heard that the reality that Jesus brings, the truth of their works as evil and yet the offer of salvation. Lord, please save people right here, right now. Come to Jesus. May people come. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your honesty. Thank you for working in us. We look forward to seeing what you are doing this coming week. Amen.